0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ in His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Exodus sixteen, four through 8 Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they will bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. They bring in, it will be... So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel... At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord, for what are, what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God.
1: Thank you, Marini. Good morning, everybody. I'll go ahead and cue the slide to begin the sermon uh, to remind us all that not all candles are created equal. The optics look very similar on the candles until you light the fire. And then the fire re- will reveal what's inside the candle. Some will smell like vanilla. Some will smell like cinnamon. Some will smell like nothing. Some will smell like a skunk, if you're a Spencer's Gift shopper or a practical joker. But Moses and Israel have had the fire lit beneath them by being sent out into the desert uh, after being rescued from Uh, the harsh hand of Pharaoh. And there's a stark difference between what is revealed to have been inside of Moses and inside uh, the people of Israel. Inside Moses was what you could call the aroma of trust and the aroma of obedience for the most part. Inside Israel uh, was what you could call the aroma of unbelief and a grumbling spirit. And this unbelief and grumbling spirit was in spite of the fact that God had miraculously led them through walls of water, splitting the Red Sea open, uh, to send them into freedom from their former 400 years of slavery. And this is in spite of the fact their grumbling is that 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 God provided fresh spring water out of a rock in the desert miraculously. This is in spite of the fact that God has promised them that he is going to lead them into a land flowing with milk and honey, filled with luxury, filled with just all sorts of wonderful gifts and pleasures. But because they have to wait for that, they're irritable. They're irritable about their current conditions. Here, Here are some of the verses that led into this current passage that we just heard read it says just before this passage that the whole congregation of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And they said, would that we had died in Egypt where we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, which was actually not true. You, Moses and Aaron, have brought us into this wilderness in order to kill us with hunger. So from this episode of humble faith on Moses' part and Aaron's as well, and grumbling unbelief, we get three points as usual. Would you expect different? The sins we commit, the gifts God gives in the face of that, and then finally the bread before us. So let's talk about the sins we commit. and We'll, we'll use Israel as a case study. So there so are two kinds of sins that are happening here, like there are always two kinds of sins happening. There are the surface sins, which are the grumbling, the complaining, the false statements uh, and accusations and slander about Moses and Aaron. Those are the surface sins, and it stinks. But then there's a, there's a wax, a skunk, uh, a skunk smell wax beneath it, the sin beneath the sin, which is what you call unbelief. Unbelief is what drives every act of resistance to what God has said and to what God's up to in the world. So in, in the eighth verse, Moses we see exposes what Israel is apparently reluctant to admit. He says this your gr- your grumbling is actually not against Aaron and me. Your grumbling is against the Lord. All we're doing is parroting what the Lord has told us to say to you. So your your issue really isn't with us. Your issue is with God Himself. It's another way of saying you think very highly of your own vision of what the good life is supposed to look like. And you think very little about what God's vision is for the good life. You know, when I first became a follower of Christ, I was 21 years old. I was still in college. I was about to finish college. And a person who was guiding me along the way of of what it looks like to trust and follow Christ gave me some verses from the Bible that, that he said would be really helpful to commit to memory. And the very first one that he Uh, had me commit to memory was Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's kind of a famously memorized passage of Scripture. And it says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. The idea here is that we are finite. We do not know what we do not know. We do not have the full picture of things. God does know what we do not know. God does have the full picture of things. And so what Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is after is this, to convince us that if we were able to know and to see everything that God does, we would be completely on board with everything that he said and with everything that he does. But because we don't know what we don't know, we reverse Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 as a regular practice. This is what unbelief looks like. Instead of trust in the Lord with all your heart, we trust in our own gut with all of our heart. We trust in our own feelings and our own instincts with all of our heart, and we lean not on the Lord's word or the Lord's ways especially if our ways are in conflict with the Lord's ways. Faith has a very high view of God and a very humble view of self. Unbelief has a very high view of self and a relatively low view of God. So, unbelief here is showing up in two ways. Uh, forms of distrust and the first is that uh, Israel has a functional distrust in the things that God has said now now all throughout all throughout exodus Israel never completely forsakes their identity as the children of God you could call them nominal believers you could call them cultural believers nominal means in name only You know, Isaiah put it this way, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me and it shows up in your life. They still identify as the Lord's people, but also throughout Exodus, they over and over again are presuming veto power over everything that God has said that they don't like or that they don't understand. They presume Veto and editorial power instead of looking to God to exercise veto and editorial power over them. They don't look to God as authority. They don't look to God as author, as the competent and able and capable writer of their stories and of the story of the world. They don't look at God that way. They see themselves that way. And so wherever they agree with what God has said or they agree with what God's up to, they're on board. But wherever they're in conflict personally with whatever God says or whatever God's up to, they presume to veto. In this specific episode, where they exercise their presumed veto rights, which really aren't their rights, but they do it anyway, is over what God has said about their provision and sustenance, and Sabbath. Their provision came to them in the form of this miraculous bread that rained down every morning from heaven called manna. It's the sweet bread. And what God says is, don't hoard what I provide for you. Don't hoard it. Only take for yourselves what you need and then leave the rest for everybody else. And with that command to trust me, I am going to give you a promise that every day I'm going to rain fresh bread for you down from heaven. That's where Jesus got the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Jesus no doubt was thinking of this very episode, the daily bread of manna from heaven. This is how my people are to live. They're to live trusting that the Father's going to provide That they are not their own providers, but that God is their provider. And furthermore, there's another command I give, and that is to honor the Sabbath and to keep it holy. Every seventh day, no collecting bread. Collect twice as much on the sixth day, and then the seventh day is a day for you to rest, to enjoy community, to, to, to get a good long nap, to have life together before the face of God and with one another. The principle is this. God is saying, I will give you 100% provision on a portion of what I provide. I will give you 100% provision for six days of work. I'll give you seven days provision. And what do they do? They don't listen. They sort of listen. They collect manna, but they do it seven days instead of six. They sort of listen with regard to the sabbath they do all the god things but they also get to work on the sabbath morning and what happens is that 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 the bread they collect in 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 ways that god does not authorize but actually explicitly says don't do it that way it turns to worms and it starts to stink which is a metaphor for what happens whenever God's people decide they want to exercise veto power over anything that God has said. Eventually, either immediately or sometime down the road, it turns to worms. It turns turns into a stench. It, it decomposes, it corrodes, it erodes. Rigor mortis sets in. It always does. And yet we are slow to learn. That's why Israel needed 40 years in the wilderness of trusting God. To to wean them off of this idea that they knew better than God did what their needs were. That they loved themselves better than God loved them. That they were after their own flourishing more than God was after their flourishing. Now there are two signs that you belong to God and that I belong to God. One is that we trust what he says. We believe this stuff. Sometimes we believe it only a little bit. But Jesus said, mercifully, only a mustard seed of faith, only a little bitty, tiny bit of faith is all you need in order to belong in the family of God. Because it's not the strength of your faith. It's, 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 It's the strength of the object in whom you're placing your faith, that matters. So that's one. We trust what he said, even if it's just a little bit. But there's also a noticeable, discernible pattern over time of obeying the things that he said. And here's a little, here's a little insight. We have not obeyed God yet. If we only find ourselves following those things that he has said and, and keeping and obeying those things that he said that we already agree with, that we're already on board with that we already feel good about. The first time that you ever obeyed God was when you said yes to Scripture by saying no to the way that you felt. You said yes to what God has said by saying no to your own understanding, your own instinct, your own gut. That was your first act of obedience. And for Israel, they still have not obeyed God with the resource of manna. They still have not obeyed God with the resource of their time. They're twisting everything. They're adapting and editing everything to their own liking. And God says, no, that doesn't work. Now, here's a pastoral word to those who have yet to really obey. I've been a pastor for more than a quarter of a century and to date, I've never met a single person who applied Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. I've never met a single person who went against their own gut, against their own fears, against their own instincts to do what God said about this, 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 or this, and regretted it. Never. I've met hundreds and hundreds of people. I've been in a counseling office with hundreds and hundreds of people over those years who have said yes to their own gut and yes to their own instinct in a way that said no to something that God has said, and it's turned to worms, and it's turned into a stink. You see, because disobeying what God says, assuming veto and editorial rights over what God has said is not only an assault on the nature and character of God, which it is. It is also an assault on ourselves. We're designed to flourish in the way that God has set up life to be lived by people who've been created in his image. So to go against God is really to go against ourselves. It's to create this autoimmune response to the soul where we end up attacking ourselves. We end up making ourselves more sick and bringing more pain upon ourselves. It's like our own system is attacking us when when the system is built around the idea that I know better than God does. About this or this or this or this. So unbelief shows up in a functional distrust in what God has said. And the second way that it shows up is in a functional distrust over how God is running the world right now. Because we believe that we are better authors of our own stories and of the story of the world than God is. You know, Rich Mullins put it this way in one of his songs. It's called Hold Me, Jesus, and it's sort of a dialogue or a monologue, a talk to Jesus, a prayer to Jesus, and he confesses in the song, I would rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. That's Israel. That's us. We would rather fight God for things that we don't really want, because they will turn to worms, and they will start to stink eventually, rather than to take what he gives that we need. What do we need? The gifts that he gives, that's the second point. He gives his word. It's our blueprint for how to flourish. In the same way that the water is the habitat for a fish to flourish, the sky is the habitat for an eagle to flourish, the law of God, which will have Ten whole messages on that when we go through the Ten Commandments. The law of God, the design of God is our habitat. It's our water. It's our sky. It's our habitat for flourishing. But when we refuse that gift, God comes in with another gift. The gift of pain. If we will not spare ourselves of pain... By following the words that God says, he will give us another gift of pain to redirect us back to his word, which we need. Jonah is a great example. I mean, you have to talk about Jonah this week, right? After the news reported about the guy who got swallowed by a whale and then spit out. It can happen, you guys. For all of you Jonah doubters... It it still happens. Jonah is told by God go this way, and he goes that way instead. And what it says in the book of Jonah, it does not say that God assaulted Jonah with a fish that swallowed him. It said that God provided Jonah with a fish that swallowed him. And then later on, Jonah is kind of sitting on a perch, and it's, it's a blistering hot day, like it is for the Israelites in the desert. Uh, right now, and it says that God provided for Jonah shade from a plant, and Jonah, like the Israelites, instead of being thankful, just kept on grumbling. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, hell begins with a grumbling mood. And so it says that after Jonah complained under God's shade, it says that God then provided A worm to eat the plant and to kill the shade and to increase Jonah's misery. What's that about? It's the same thing that God is doing here with Israel, where he provides a desert for them. He provides thirst. He provides hunger. He provides heat. He provides maggots. He provides 40 years of waiting before sending them into the promised land. He provides scarcity. He provides poverty. He provides lack of provision for the people of God to redirect their hearts again to where their true provision lies in manna and Sabbath. The sustenance that God provides and God alone and entering into his rest. Their bodies had left Egypt and, the, and, and what Eugene Peterson calls the anxiety system of pharaohs, their bodies had left, but their hearts had not. They prefer still, the Israelites do, the predictability of slavery over the adventure of freedom. Freedom's too risky. Freedom is too unknown. Freedom is too controlled by God. I'd rather just do the recidivism thing. I would rather just lie to myself with baseless nostalgia about how great it was when we were in in Egypt that time. Had all this meat. I mean, are you kidding? You get sweet, freshly baked bread rained down from the sky. And you want what Pharaoh gave you instead. And then you get delicious quail, a delicacy, in the desert. Quail don't exist in the desert. And and God is providing that for you every night. You are feasting out here and you're just lying to yourselves about how good it was back there. This is the language. Israel's language is the language of addiction. Getting nostalgic about how great cocaine was, about how much life and vitality and freedom heroin brought, about how wonderful the bottle made my life and the life of everyone around me. It's the language of an addict, it's the language of a junkie. I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. Hold me, Jesus, for I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been my king of glory. Won't you be my prince of peace? It's a language of an addict. And so what does God do? He throws him into rehab in the middle of the desert. Just asking somebody the other day who's been through recovery, why is it that all the great rehab centers are in Arizona? And it just sort of clicked this morning. (laughs) That's where God heals people. He heals people in the desert. That's where he intervenes. That's where the rehab happens. Sheldon Van Auken called it a severe mercy, where God imposes on people that he loves a lesser temporary pain in order to spare them of a greater permanent one. So yeah, God provided A desert, thirst, hunger, heat, maggots, 40 years of waiting, scarcity, poverty. God provided the lack of provision in order to provide the people of Israel what they needed more than life itself. You know, C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says this. He says, we can easily ignore pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pains. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt, pain, as God's megaphone, is a terrible instrument. But it gives, there's that word again, gives, provides. It gives the only opportunity for the bad man to have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of the rebel soul. What an image. Planting a flag of truth in the fortress of the rebel soul. The rebel soul is revealed through grumbling. Where hell begins. The rebel, rebel soul is liberated when people can be even in the wilderness and give thanks. And give thanks. Like it says in Romans chapter 1, though, the Israelites are are in danger right now because they are refusing to give thanks to God. And they're passing blame anywhere that they can for their own misery that they brought on themselves. So where's the mercy here? The mercy is that God doesn't abandon them. He takes everything away from them that they demand, and he leaves for them the one thing that they need himself. The cloud, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, remain for 40 solid years in the desert. Feels like betrayal to Israel, but it's really a life-saving endeavor. If any of you you who have kids have, have ever had an experience where your child could not stop throwing up, and they become dehydrated, and then they keep throwing up, and become more dehydrated, and, and it's scary. And then you take them into the ER, and, and the doctor says, oh, this is an easy fix. But I'm going to need you to hold your child down on the table. They won't understand it, but this is how we're going to save your child's life. i got to stick a needle. i got to stick an IV needle in, and then there's got to be a water drip that happens. And the revival happens like that, you guys. But you're the bad guy in that moment. You're holding your child down. You're holding your child back to force your child to receive the water of life. That's what's happening here. You've got a whole dehydrated nation of grumblers. They don't trust their father at all. They think he has it out for them when when really what he's trying to do is save their lives. Listen to what Johnny Erickson taught us said. After 50 years of paralysis from the neck down, This is with decades of of paralysis and cancer behind her. I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner. Then in my new perfect glorified body, standing on grateful glorified legs, I will stand next to my Savior and I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me, there's the word again, given, provided me the bruising of the blessing of that wheelchair. That's how God's people Grow eventually over time to see the desert. It's like Arizona. It's where junkies go to get well. And sometimes they have to get forced to go there, but that's where junkies go. That's where addicts go. That's where people who worship recidiv- recidivism and the anxiety system of Pharaoh go in order to detox and to rehab and to become whole. The desert as God holds Israel down and holds them back and blesses them with the bruising. He takes away from them everything that they're demanding, and he gives to them what he needs himself. And bread. No good sermon is a good sermon until you tell a couple of dad da jokes. Philip Reichen said this was the first invention of wonder bread. Get it? Keith Green has a song portraying Israel. It's called So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. And this is his portrayal of Israel complaining about the manna. What? Oh no, manna again? Manna waffles, manna burgers, manna bagels, fillet of manna, manna patty, banana bread, <laughs> and daily quail and water in the desert. Pharaoh's water, he'd make you drink out of the sewer. God's given you spring water in the middle of a 110-degree arid wasteland. Which direction do you want to go? Why does God do this? It's in verse 6. That you may know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The most loving thing that God can do for a grumbler is give the grumbler less Of what the grumbler demands. To starve the grumbler. Of the things that the grumbler says the grumbler must have. In order for God to be trusted. To starve the grumbler. And to replace those things. With himself. With more of God. And that brings us finally to the bread that is before us. Israel is being asked. Summoned required to trust in a promised future and to live their present lives accordingly, we, on the other hand, are being asked and pressed to trust in a fulfilled past, which also seals our future, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He does not just give bread to us. He is the bread. Jesus was the one who was sent out into the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days. And he was tempted with luxury, power, and so on. And the reason why he couldn't go 40 years was because he would die soon after that. But Even as he's tempted in the desert with things like luxury and power and comfort, What does he do? He clings to the word of God instead of editing it and revising it. He says, it is written. It is written. It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He tells his disciples, I am the bread of life. John chapter 6, he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Give. He has done the work now, our primary work is to receive daily bread and to trust him with the proper stewardship of every bit of sustenance that he sends our way and to enter his rest. And so here we are right now, you guys, observing the Sabbath. Congratulations, you're already ahead of the Israelites. You're, you're here in the Lord's house. Those of you who are joining us online, you're, you're here. Doing what God says is good for you. And good for us. And good by him. And here he is. Providing the bread. By being the bread. (laughs) Saying to us, this is my body given for you. This is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of what I've done. And also in remembrance of what I have yet to do. In my coming return. So all those things being said. It's time for us to celebrate what Jesus told us to celebrate often. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Our Lord and God and Father and King, in the 23rd Psalm, you tell us of how you prepare a table for your people in the wilderness. And it is there in the wilderness where you say that you will restore our souls. And you will do so by giving us daily bread, the food, the shelter, and the clothing, which are our needed provisions. But even more than this, you give us Jesus day in and day out, day after day, who is the bread of life. For this, we thank you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.